You know, I uh, I love stories of incredible like hospitality, uh, customer service, things like that. Uh, those stories just kind of get me. But there's one such story that I heard not too long ago. It was a story of what took place at a, through a Ritz Carlton. Yeah, I know they're five star. I get it, but stay with me. They um, there was a family that stayed at a Ritz Carlton in Indonesia, and they left. They packed up. And they were in the airport, they were getting on their plane, and all of a sudden, mom and dad realized that they didn't have their child's prized stuffed giraffe, whose name was Josiah. And they knew that when they got home and their child realized that Josiah was not with them, that there was going to be a meltdown. And if any of you have kids and your kids may have a precious stuffed animal, prized stuffed animal or blankie or whatever, and you lost that at one point in time, you know how important those things are for your child, right? The parents knew this. So they called the Ritz Carlton that they had just stayed in and they said, hey, we, our child, we, we left our child's stuffed giraffe in our room. If there's any way that you can locate that and maybe get that back to us, we would greatly appreciate it. You know, their thinking is just kind of ship it. I'm sure they would pay for the shipping, whatever, you know, just they could get it, get it back to be with their child. And so, um, so the, the Ritz Carlton, the employees of the Ritz Carlton, they immediately go to work trying to find this stuffed, stuffed giraffe. They look first in the room, it's not in the room. They start looking all over the hotel. They can't find the stuffed giraffe anywhere in the hotel. Finally, they realized that housekeeping had located it and they had sent it back to their facility, to the housekeeping facilities, their laundry facilities. So once they found out where it was, what this Ritz Carlton did was they worked with a courier to allow one of their employees to fly on the plane with that courier to go back to the States or go to the States and deliver that stuffed giraffe to that family. So this employee of the Ritz-Carlton comes to their house dressed as a pilot, knock, rings the doorbell, family comes to the door, asks to see the child and delivers this stuffed giraffe. And he says, Josiah missed the flight with you guys. We made sure he got to you. That is above and beyond hospitality and customer service. I contrast that with the time that I left my pillow. And yes, I travel with a pillow because when you find a good pillow, it's hard enough to sleep in a hotel as it is sometimes. So I need my pillows. Anyway, uh, my head just sits right on. But anyway, so I left it and I called them and I said I left it. And they said, we'll see what we can do. And they found it. And then they told me, and they charged me to ship it back to me. So I mean, but I, so I obviously didn't say to Ritz Carlton, but um, but uh, but I was willing because it was my fault anyway. So I got my pillow back, and I, it still travels with me. But anyway, you hear that story about Ritz Carlton, you think, well, they're five star, right? They're supposed to do those types of things. I still think that's kind of above and beyond to put an employee on a plane to fly back and use that employee's time. Have you ever heard the phrase, my pleasure, at an establishment before? When you hear the phrase, my pleasure, what establishment do you think of? Everybody, right? Chick-fil-A. You immediately, you're saying Chick-fil-A. That phrase actually began at Chick-fil-A because the owner of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, he was staying in a Ritz-Carlton one time on one of his trips. And the employees there kept saying to him, my pleasure, my pleasure. I shared this story with our volunteers not too long ago. And he heard that and he thought to himself, you know, hearing my pleasure at a Ritz-Carlton, you know, people probably expect to hear that. But I wonder if people expect to hear my pleasure at their local fast food chicken restaurant. 
And so he came back, and Truett Cathy is a Christian. He is a follower of Christ, or was. He's no longer with us. He was a follower of Christ. He started Chick-fil-A, founded Chick-fil-A on biblical principles. That's why they're not open on Sundays. And he came back thinking to himself, you know what? This type of mentality is a mentality that we should live with as followers of Christ. But if we have a business and the opportunity to work with others through our businesses, we should represent that in our business as well. So that's why every, every employee at Chick-fil-A is now trained to use the phrase, my pleasure. It's why it's almost a game now. When you go in, you say thank you so many times just to see how many times you can get them to say, my pleasure. Right? It's a fun game. If you never try it, you should try But I want us to understand this morning that hospitality is not a characteristic that's reserved just for five-star establishments and southern birth chicken restaurants. Hospitality is a God quality. And it is a characteristic that all of us as followers of Christ should have in our life. This gift this, or this characteristic, this quality of being hospitable. We're concluding our series today, Her Story. And we've been looking at several different stories of women's stories in the Bible. It's not the only stories from women in the Bible. Um, But it's some really good ones. And so week one, we looked at the story of Rahab and we said her story is a story of rescue. And we saw the power of the rescue that took place through her. And it reminds us and it points to the fact that Jesus came to rescue us. And he's called us to be a part of that rescue mission. We saw the beautiful story of Ruth in week two. We saw that her story is a story of redemption. That God worked through her to and, and worked through the kinsman redeemer to bring redemption to her family. And it points to the fact that Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. And he can take us from a place of ruin to a place of restoration because he pursued us as our kinsman redeemer to redeem us. And he's called us to be a part of that redemption story. And then we heard a synopsis last week of the story of Esther and how God placed her as a Jewish queen to a pagan king and put her in this place to risk her life to to stand for the Jewish people for such a time as this. But I told you that when I was studying and preparing, I couldn't help but think of Rhea Van Outen who shared last week. And if you were here, if you didn't, I encourage you to go back and listen, go back and watch, whatever. Hear that story. Can't tell you how many people I've talked to this week that told me, wow, I didn't even, I, I had no clue if you knew her, but even if you didn't know her, they were like, wow, that story. <laughs> to hear what all she's been through. Because Rhea, kind of like Esther, she wouldn't have chose the place that she was put in in this life. To get cancer of her own. For her mom to go through heart problems. For her dad to get cancer and pass. For her daughter to deal with a tumor on the side of her mouth. All within like four or five years, just constantly coming one right after another. She wouldn't have chosen that place, but all through it, she sought God for her purpose in it. For this place that she's put. Just like you, many of you probably have places in your life that you wouldn't have chose for yourself. But it's powerful to look and say, God, what's my purpose in this? What have you called me to for such a time as this, even through all of this? Today, we're concluding by looking at the story of a lady named Lydia. Now, Lydia doesn't have her own book like Esther, like Ruth. She doesn't even have her own chapter like Rahab. She gets just a few verses, (laughs) but her story is powerful. And I want us to see that this morning. I want us to see all that we can unpack just from a few verses looking at Lydia and her story of hospitality. Her response to the gospel is an immediate response of obedience and servitude. 
And it's a response that should challenge us to make us look at our life and say, do I respond to the salvation and the grace of Jesus Christ in the same way to others? So we're going to jump into the story of Lydia. It's in Acts chapter 16 is where we see this account take place. Acts chapter 16, we're going to start at verse 13. And it's just a few verses that tell us really the, the bulk of what happens with Lydia. So it's Acts chapter 16, start at verse 13. It says, on, Luke writes this, On the Sabbath we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with other members of her household, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. So those are the main verses. There's one more we'll get in a minute. But those are the main verses that tell us about Lydia. So what can we pull out of that? How much can we possibly pull out of this about Lydia? A lot, and I'm going to show you. This was Paul's third and final missionary journey. This was, uh, he was wrapping, you know, this was the last one he would get to do before he would get put in prison. And we would read a lot of the letters that he writes while he's in prison. His third and final missionary journey. Luke, at the beginning of this chapter, Luke tells us that Paul, Silas, Timothy, they were really wanting to go to the province of Asia. Asia was a region, a province. It's not where we call Asia today. It's where we call, it's modern day Turkey now. But then it was the province of Asia. They really wanted to go to that region. They wanted to go to that area. But God had not opened up a door. He didn't allow it. But in a vision, this night before, uh, before they're in this point in the story, in a vision, God had given Paul one night about Macedonia, the region, the province of Macedonia. So Paul says, we're going to Macedonia. And they end up in this, the, the, one of the big cities, the metropolitan city of that region called Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a leading city in Macedonia. So they go into Philippi and Luke tells us that when they get there, it's the Sabbath. Now what Paul would do on any Sabbath is he would find a synagogue because he wants to go to the place where they get together and they worship God. And so that's what he's looking for. History tells us that 10 men in a region are required to establish a synagogue. Philippi doesn't have a synagogue. So what that tells us is there's not 10 men of faith who follow God, who are Jews in the area of Philippi. Okay. So Luke then tells us that they head to a place that they thought people would be praying. That word they're thought in some translations is translated supposed or it's translated expected. The reason it's translated these different ways is because basically what that word means is it gives off the, it gives the meaning of common knowledge. There was this common knowledge that this took place in this area. It's almost like when you go to a movie theater, it's common knowledge that the movie theater will have popcorn, right? You go, you expect to smell it as soon as the door is open. If not before, you want to get it unless you have diverticulitis and you can't. And you get the popcorn and then you enjoy the movie, right? Now, this, was, uh, this is what that meant. Paul, Luke and these guys had heard. It's just common knowledge that because there's no synagogue, people gather at this riverside and they pray. They spend time praying. So this is where they end up and this is where they go. And maybe you notice that Luke tells us they sat down with the women there who were praying. 
So what that tells us is that there must not, there weren't even 10. There must not have been any men who were following God. It was just women. But Paul and Silas and Timothy, they sit down with these ladies to talk to them. Now, that's a, that's a huge statement. And we'll often read over this and we don't think anything about it. In fact, I'm going to start talking about it. And you may not think much about it as I talk about it. But in this day, this is huge. And I'm going to tell you why. The, the phrase that, that, uh, that Luke uses to say that, that Paul sat down and he began speaking. Greek scholars tell us that this phrase is in the imperfect tense. Which means that Paul didn't just begin speaking. He started speaking and he kept speaking. Kind of like me on Sundays, right? I start and I just keep doing it, right? So this is what Paul was doing. He sat down and he kept, so it's more than just pleasantries. It's more than just, hey, how are you? I'm Paul. I'm from, you know, back here and you're from here. You know, it's more than just that. He's sitting down and he's beginning to talk. Well, we'll look at what he's talking about and, and consider what he's talking about in a second. But this is huge. This is huge. The reason this is huge is because Paul grew up or, and, and he was in the line of Pharisees. If you know the story of Paul, he was a Pharisee. He trained under one of the most prominent Pharisees there was. He was in line to be one of the prominent Pharisees. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, when the church was being established and people were going around still talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel of Jesus, Paul was Saul, he was Saul at that time and he was chasing them all over the place because he wanted to arrest them and wanted to kill them. This was his life. This was his journey. As a Pharisee, what they would have been taught, the teaching they would have held to, what they would have known, they would have said this, it is better for the law of God to be burned than to be taught to women. That's what they were taught. That's what they expressed. Pharisees would often go out into public and they would say these prayers and they would pray out loud, thank you, God, I'm not a Gentile. Thank you, God, I'm not a slave. Thank you, God, I'm not a woman. Now, we were eating at the table the other day and somebody made a statement and I made a comment. They said, they said thank, you need to thank God that you're not a 15-year-old girl. I said, yeah, I do. Every day, I thank God. I am not. I'm not. But that was for a different reason than what the Pharisees would thank God they're not a woman for. It's a totally different reason. Because they had no respect for them. They didn't think they deserved the right to know the law of God or anything about God. So they would pray this. And incidentally, in this chapter, we're going to see where Pharisees would pray that they'd think, God, I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, I'm not a woman. In this situation, Paul sees three people set free who were women, a slave, and Gentile. It's powerful. But this is how much the gospel of Jesus Christ had changed Paul's life. And that's a powerful testimony. So he sits down with these women and he begins to talk to them. The fact that he sat down, Luke is demonstrating that he's taking the posture of a teacher. Because this is what the rabbis would do. When they would sit, the people, their students would sit around them and they would teach. He's taking the posture of a teacher and he's teaching these ladies who other Pharisees said didn't deserve to be taught. And he's spending time with them. And he's sharing the gospel. And we see from Luke that one of these ladies is a lady by the name of Lydia. And Luke tells us that Lydia 
is from an area called Thyatira. It's, it's also a metropolitan city. More on that in just a second, because it is pretty important. But she's from there, and he tells us that she, she works and she trades in uh, purple cloth. In this fine purple cloth. She, uh, purple cloth was huge in Roman colonies in that day. It was a big part of their togas, right? It was, it was a big, big part of what they wore as their togas, the purple garments and the fabrics. So Lydia was a fashionista, right? I mean, she, she was in the fashion industry. And so if you look at the fact that she's traveling to Philippi, a metropolitan city, from another metropolitan city, Thyatira, you know, she was probably pretty wealthy. She was in this. You think about it today, it's kind of like she had a home in Los Angeles and she's got one in New York City, right? I mean, this is kind of what Lydia's like. And let's just hope that the fashion she's producing is better than anything that we saw at the Met Gala. If you saw any of that horrendous stuff, don't go look it up. But anyway, let's just hope it's better and probably is. But But this is who she is. She's a fashionista and she designs and she works. But Luke also tells us that she was worshiping and she worshiped God. She worshiped God. She was a God-fearer. This is important. Because what this means is that Lydia had chosen to worship the God of Israel. To worship Yahweh. The God known as Yahweh. She had chosen that to, to, to say that. I am not about paganism. I'm, 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 I'm rejecting paganism. I am rejecting polytheism because in this day, a lot, multiple gods was big in this day. It was, uh, it was, you know, you had a God for this and a God for that. She said, you think about it from her role in her industry. She didn't believe that there was a God of beauty, that there was a God of music, that there was a God of dance, that there was a God of art, that there was a God of trade. She believed that there was one God. She didn't need multiple gods to fulfill individual needs. She needed one God to fulfill all her needs. And that's what she believed. The only thing that she was missing was an understanding of Jesus Christ. It had not gotten to her. She didn't know about Jesus Christ. She didn't know what he had come to do for her. What she understood was what little bit of knowledge she had somehow been able to grasp about the law because she's a woman. What she understood was the fact that she's imperfect. There's no way for her to keep the law. She knew that atonement had to be made in some type of way through sacrifices to offer forgiveness of sins. She knew that much. And so what Paul did, what we can gather, if you look at the context of all the letters of Paul, Paul probably sat down with her and began to build on what she already knew about the law and about atonement and talk to her about what Jesus did. And he said, the law that you know about, just like he did in other letters that we read from Paul, the law that you know about, it just shows us how much we've fallen short of the glory of God. And yes, we do need atonement, but our ultimate atonement and our ultimate forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ and through him alone. It's not in anything else we do. And then Luke tells us that she grabs on to what Paul is saying. He says, the Lord opened her heart and she received everything that she's saying. In other words, she was clinging to every word that came out of the mouth of Luke, out of the mouth of Paul. She was clinging to it. She was grabbing to it. and, and, And she wanted to show Paul that what she was hearing, it wasn't just going in one in and out of the, she wanted to show him, I am grabbing what you're saying and I want it to change my life. I want my life to change because of it. Now, remember I told you that Lydia was from Thyatira and that was important. Thyatira was a, was a metropolitan city in the province of Asia. Remember I told you that Paul did not get an open door to go to Asia, but he did get an open door to go to Macedonia. And when he went to Macedonia, it led him to Philippi, 
which led him to meet a woman named Lydia, who was from Thyatira, from the province of Asia. God's ways are higher than our ways. We may have a desire for something to happen in this way, but God will open doors for it to happen another way. Just because it doesn't go the way we were hoping, it doesn't mean it's not going to work. It's likely that the gospel message just wasn't meant to go to the province of Asia from the mouth of Paul. It was meant to go through the mouth of Lydia. We know that there was a church in Thyatira because the apostle John, when he writes his vision from Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation that we have, one of the churches that he writes to is the church of Thyatira. So a church was birthed there. And who's to say that Lydia wasn't the one that went back and birthed that church? And took the, we know she was willing to go and to share the gospel because Luke tells us that not only did her life change, but her whole household was baptized and changed. So that means she went back to her household and she let Paul share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those in her home. And her home was changed. She let them know, listen to this. And they were changed. And the very first act of obedience that she did, the very first act of obedience that showed her her humility and her brokenness, Luke tells us, was to be baptized. Why? What's so important about baptism? We talked about this early in the year. You can go back and listen or watch that. But what it was, it was it, baptism was not essential to her salvation. Her salvation came from Jesus' death and resurrection and her faith in it and her belief in it. What baptism did was baptism says, I associate myself with God. Yes, I, I, I follow the God of Israel. I associate with myself with the one and only God. But I associate myself with God by, being a, by, by identifying myself with Jesus Christ through baptism. The same thing that Jesus did and that Jesus called us to, to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm going to identify myself with God, not through other customs, not through any other thing. I'm identifying myself with God through baptism. And so she does this and she does this with her family. And then she demonstrates this love and this kindness she, she begins to act in this love and this kindness that's incredible. Her heart had been opened by the Lord. And then Lydia opens herself up to serve through hospitality and the grace of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this about an open heart. He said, those who do nothing for Christ or his church give but sorry evidence of an open heart. He just kind of put it blind, right? And then he said, Lord, Evermore, give me an open heart. What is he saying? Evermore, let me demonstrate the open heart I have to you through this life to others. It's what we're called to do. See, Lydia demonstrates that she was saved through faith by the grace of Jesus Christ to do good works for Jesus Christ. It's what we're all. That's the way it all works for all of us. When we come to Christ and we accept, we're saved through faith in what he did for us. But we're saved by his grace. Not by doing anything. We're saved by his grace and his mercy. But then because of that salvation, we're saved to do good works for Christ. And this is what Lydia demonstrates and this is what she does. And so Luke tells us that she urged them to stay. Think about it, being at grandma's house. And her, grandpa, whoever it is, constantly urging you to eat more food, right? We've got plenty. We're just going to throw it away. You need to eat more. No, I don't because I'm about to, you know, explode. This is Lydia. She's urging them. You've got to come stay at my 
place. This was huge. Paul would write later in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, he would encourage the church. He would say, always be eager to practice hospitality. That phrase, always be eager to practice. Some translations say, pursue hospitality. When that word is used in the Greek and other contexts, it's almost been a pressing in, a persecuting someone with hospitality in this case. I've told our volunteers before, I would rather us as a church kill people with kindness than run them away with rudeness. This is what Paul is talking about. Be eager to show hospitality. Pursue others in this. And Lydia did it by opening up her home. And this was huge in these days because when people like Paul were traveling on their journeys, they couldn't just stay in inns. Why? Because inns were filthy. Inns were dirty, they were expensive, and they were often immoral. We don't know this just through biblical history. We know it because Plato even expressed, uh, he described innkeepers as pirates who hold their guests for ransom. That's the way Plato described uh, the, the, the inns and innkeepers. Uh, there was a Greek playwright by the name of Aristophan. He wrote in one of his plays, uh, the line was his character Heracles, not Hercules, Heracles, uh, spoke to his companion. He said, where are we staying for the night? And his companion said, where are the fleas are fewest? That's where we'll stay. That was the description of inns. That's how inns were perceived. So that's why when people like Paul and these others would travel on their journeys, it was important for people to open up their homes for them to stay and to be a part. Lydia immediately became a part of that call. And and we got to catch this. Hospitality was so important in this culture and in this day. It was highly valuable. It was absolutely necessary for the expansion of the gospel. It was absolutely necessary for the fellowship of the church. And it was absolutely necessary for the image of the church to the world. I would say it's no different today. Hospitality is necessary. It is important between all of us, between us and the world around us. It's important for the expansion of the gospel. It's important for the fellowship of the body. And it's important for the image of the body to the world around us. They need to see a people who love. Lydia understood this. And as I said, when you go on in in this chapter, you see that Paul has a slave girl that's walking behind her. She's saying all kinds of stuff. He realizes it's an evil spirit. He casts the evil spirit out of her through the power of Jesus Christ. She's set free. So now you've got two women and a slave set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then the owners of that slave don't like it. So they go to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin puts Paul and Silas and these guys in prison. They're locked up in prison. What do they do? They worship. They sing praises. As they're singing praises, all of a sudden the chains are broken loose. You know, break every chain, break every chain. That's what they're saying. Chains are broken loose. The doors fling open. And all of a sudden the jailer realizes that, that the doors are open. So he's thinking they've escaped rather than face the cruelty that he's going to face from his leadership. He's just going to end his life. Paul shouts out, no, don't do that. He shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with this jailer who is a Gentile. He changes his life, gives his life to Jesus Christ. His household is changed. So he must invite Paul back to house, to his house. His whole family is changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is transforming lives. And then look, the very first place after all of that takes place that we see Paul and these guys go, Acts chapter 16, verse 40, they left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers, encouraged them once more, and then they left town. Lydia's story is a story of hospitality. It's a gospel story. It's a story that through hospitality, the gospel of Jesus Christ is shared. The gospel of Jesus Christ is put out. 
to the world. Hospitality basically just means taking a genuine interest in someone else and in their story and their life. Maybe it's just for a moment, or maybe you take that interest and you invite them into your life. But that's what we're called to. And I wonder when Paul wrote that letter, and that and we see it in Romans when he wrote to be eager. I wrote. I just wondered: Was he thinking about Lydia? Did he have Lydia in his mind and the way she urged them and pursued them with hospitality when he wrote that? Even Jesus, even Jesus taught us to be hospitable. And he said, you need to be hospitable with those that are more than just outside your circle of friends. He says, because it's easy to be hospitable to people that's going to be hospitable back to you. He says, your hospitality needs to go to even those that aren't always so hospitable to you. This is what we're called to. The author of Hebrews tells us that we never know when we are being hospitable that we might be entertaining angels. You never know how far your act of hospitality can go in someone's life. Hospitality just involves opening up our hearts to other people. It means being present in people's lives. It It means showing and expressing kindness and compassion to other people. It might take place through the form of a shared meal. It might take place just through some type of practical help and assistance to someone in their life. It could take place just by sitting down and listening to them share what's on their heart and being a part of it. But the thing about hospitality is generous hospitality has the power to transform lives. And it has the power to create community and belonging. Hospitality is very, very powerful. There's a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. I've shared about her before. She wrote a book called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And in this book, she just talks about what she calls radical, ordinary hospitality. And I wanted to give you just a look at, when you look through this book and you see all that she does, as she feels like she's called to hospitality in this life, what she does for hospitality and what just a general week looks like for her. Sunday morning, she's at church. She's worshiping. She fellowships with her, the body of Christ there at her church. But then that evening on Sunday evenings, she opens up her home and it includes a meal for about 10 to 30 people from her church home to be at her house on that night, on Sunday nights. So then she goes to Monday. What does hospitality look like on Monday? Well, when the opportunity arises, sometimes it means taking a meal to a neighbor that she might have in need. How does she know that she's there in need? Because she's in tune with her neighbors. Then Tuesday comes around and she has dinner and prayer at her home with uh, neighbors and church people. She opens up her home. It's every Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, she goes to church again on Wednesday evenings. They have prayer at church. But she'll also run errands during the day on Wednesday. And sometimes it includes things like dropping off a gift to somebody through one of her connections she's found out that's been put in jail or something to this thing. Someone that she's heard about that just needs a gift of love. On Thursday, she takes a prayer walk around the neighborhood with any of the neighbors that's willing to go with her. On Friday, she has her regular Costco run. This is her grocery trip every Friday. But she doesn't go without checking with her neighbors to see if they need anything before she goes. And then she's always open to a meal with her neighbors on Friday night. Saturday, 
comes around. And again, she's always open to meal and prayer with anybody from her church and anybody in her neighborhood that wants to get together. Now, some of us look at that and we're like, my word. Now, I know you introverts in here, you're looking at that like, there ain't no way. Now, listen, I get that Butterfield is operating from a particular gifting. And it's obviously seems to be one where she, she lives out the mantra that food is God's love made edible, right? I mean, it's just, I mean, food is a big part of what she does. But this is a practical, this is, she's living from a place that's just a, an unreal gifting. And she's also living in this place where God seems to have graced her with the time to be able to do stuff like this. Not everybody's been graced with that type of gift. Not everybody's been graced with that type of time. But here's the thing. What she expresses in abundance we're all called to in some way through faithfulness to God. We're all, we might not be called to it to that extreme, but we're all called to it to some level of hospitality. She makes this statement in her book. She says, practicing radically ordinary hospitality, it sanctifies us. In other words, it, it sets us apart by putting us in a sacrificial posture of service to others. It makes us think before we act, she says. It makes us think about the person and who they are in the eyes of God before we act. Hospitality and kindness is something that we all want to get. In this life, we want it. Wherever we go, we want we want to be treated with hospitality. We want to be treated good treat me well. If we don't get it, we get upset. When Christ comes into our life, when he transforms our life, when he changes our life, we begin to see that this life is not just about everything we get. It's about what we give. So in the same way that we want to receive it, how much are we giving? Every day of our life and every opportunity we have, how much are we showing hospitality? That is story led her story to be one of hospitality. Lydia's transformation led her story to be one of hospitality. And it's something that opened up the door for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be shared. I pray that we can find that in our life as well. Will you stand with me as we end today? We're going to close just a moment of prayer. Pastor Brian is just going to sing in a form of prayer this song that we were singing earlier. He's just going to sing this little, little, a little part of this song. If you remember when Jesus summed up the law, he told the people, he said, the law is summed up this way. The first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And he said, the second is just like it. It's just as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's almost as if God was saying, the way that you show you love God is by loving others. Jesus looked at his disciples before he would be taken to the cross and he was spending some of his last time with them. He said, you want the world to know you love me and that you've been with me. You show that by loving others. Love others. Kill them with kindness. 
express hospitality and be amazed at what that might look like. So what does that look like for you? How do you love others? You never know what any small gesture of hospitality can do to open up their heart to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. When Paul stepped out of the tradition to turn his nose up to a group of women who were hungry for more of God, when he stepped out of that tradition and he opened up his heart to express the gospel of Jesus Christ and love to them and be hospitable to them, their heart was open to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. You never know what your hospitality can do. So we're going to close with just this this song of prayer to express to God, Jesus, we love you. We adore you. But as you pray that, I want you to be considering and thinking, how can I show that more than just through this words I'm singing? How can I show that by how I love others and show hospitality to them? Let's worship and let's pray. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.